You may be seated. So it is uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, my name is Clint Letterman. Uh, for some of you, it's nice to come back. It's been a long time, and so for some, you don't know who I am. So it's just some random bald guy off the street because your senior pastor keeps leaving to go on vacation a lot. So, um, but. But I'm up here, uh, Andy and I, we go, we go way back. And I'm going to play with my microphone periodically because I think Andy has a weird form in his ear. So I've tried to figure this out. So forgive me for that. But uh, so no, Andy and I have been friends all the way, really. I think it goes back to kindergarten. Uh, so but I am here because Andy wanted me to come and open up God's word with you. I want to say this, and I say this to encourage you. Andy and I talk quite a bit. I probably talk to Andy a couple times a week, and most of our conversations has to do with two things. Our family. Um, I have a 19, 16-year-old and a 9-year-old. But then he also talks about his spiritual family, which is you. And he loves you. And he always tells me it's such a blessing to shepherd, that you are easy to shepherd. Most of you. Some of you are not. But I mean, most of you are easy to shepherd. And so I come with confidence knowing that God wants me to be here this morning. But I also come before you um, knowing that you long to hear from God and his word. And when that's the case, it's easy to come before you and to open up God's word. Uh, As I told you, I'm a dad of three. And my 16-year-old is starting to drive. And that is just a terrifying reality. Of my three children, my 16-year-old is my, is, a, is my daughter. She is the most like me, and she is the most confident of all three children, which is not a great quality when she thinks she doesn't need any guidance to know how to drive. And so the last time we talked, she literally said to me, Dad, I got this. Like, I don't even need help anymore. I don't even know why I got to go to driving school. I am fully ready to get on the road. Thinking about what she said reminded me um, of my years, my teenage years with Andy. Andy got his license before me, and he did most things. He's older than me by a few months. He's more intelligent than me. He always brings that up. Um, and, and he got his license and therefore his first car. The car that we used to drive together, it was a Dodge Colt. And you know this if you're a parent. The first vehicle that your child gets, you just beat the daylights out of it. I mean, you just ride it hard. And that Dodge Colt took a lot, as Andy and I, during those initial years of driving. I remember it was abused so much that towards the end of this Dodge Colt's life, the clutch barely would engage, and you could, at the end, transition from each gear without even engaging the clutch. It got so bad. And you would think, wouldn't that be enough for you not drive that vehicle? No, that's perfectly fine. So he would literally take his foot off the brake and the gas and shove it into another gear. And sometimes it went smoothly. And other times it would rev up and it would never catch. And then it finally would. And then it would snap into place and you would see us driving down the road. Many of us have experienced these type of transitions in life. Some of them are smooth as God is moving you from one thing to another. 
But often these transitions are unsettling, uncomfortable, and often inconvenient. For me, I remember a number of the transitions in life, and I just want to share with you quickly three. The first one was becoming a husband and then a father. This was a joyful transition to marry the love of my life, to share this journey with someone. That The smell of a newborn baby, you know that smell, and enjoying that. To come home to hugs and laughter. To also come home to diaper changing and constant crying and the absence of any silence. But it was a good, it was a good transition. Another transition was losing my father-in-law to cancer. Up to that point in my life, I had never had to deal with the emotions before of saying goodbye of trying to console a grieving child, to live in a new reality where every holiday, every family vacation was still special but irreparably different. And right now I'm in a time of transition. On May 30th of this year, I wrapped up almost six years of serving as one of the pastors at Campus Bible Church in Fresno. It became clear to me that God wanted us to move on from that ministry, but instead of transitioning me into another ministry position, God has told me to wait to step back for a bit, to focus on family, to focus on my physical and spiritual health. And I have to be honest with you, this transition has been hard. I'm now in the corporate world. I'm learning a new occupation. I'm facing the reality that much of my identity was wrapped up in my calling and not as being a redeemed child of God. And so the main issue this morning that we're going to examine is this. How can we see Jesus more clearly in these unavoidable times of transition? How can we see Jesus more clearly in these times of transition? I think the Apostle Paul can help us out here. He himself had many transitions in his life, but the one that is likely the most noteworthy, the one that Scripture gives us in the most vivid detail, and from multiple angles we're going to look at this morning. But if we're going to understand Paul's most difficult transition in life, we need to get to know the man before the transition. So I want to give you six quick facts about the Apostle Paul. Number one, uh, and we're gonna, I'm going to use his Jewish name, Saul, just for a few minutes, just so you know. Fact number one, Saul was born and raised in Tarsus in Sicilia. Uh, back then it was a university town. Uh, many philosophers came from there, especially of this Stoic school. Some of the greatest ones were Chrysippus and Aratus. And in his sermon in Athens, he actually quotes the Greek poet Aratus, who comes from that philosophical vein. So he was born in Tarsus. Fact number two, Saul grew up in Jerusalem. We don't know when exactly he went to Jerusalem, moved there, but he began his training probably around the age of 12. And you might say, what was Saul being trained for? Well, he was being trained as a Pharisee. That's fact number three. It says in Acts 26.5 that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And so Saul was being trained at a very young age to be a Pharisee. Well, he was trained under, fact number four is this, he was trained under the great Gamaliel. It says that he had sat under the feet of Gamaliel. He was educated. Gamaliel, also known as Gamaliel I or Gamaliel the Elder, was the first to bear the title of master teacher. He was held in high esteem in the New Testament. And most scholars think that, remember the scene when Jesus as a young boy had all the teachers, the religious leaders around him, and he was learning and talking and discussing? It's very likely Gamaliel, even at that time, was there listening 
to the boy Jesus. Most scholars also think that Saul of Tarsus had a conflict with Gamaliel and went a different direction. Fact number five, Saul was zealous. Galatians 1.14 says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You have to get this. Saul was a zealous man. He was all bought in. He had years being taught in Judaism. It is likely that if he would have continued on this path, he would have been among the great rabbis in history. But fact number six was this, Saul persecuted the church. Galatians 1.13 says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And so you need to know all these facts as we get to today's text. And so if you have your Bibles and you're not there yet, would you open up to Acts chapter 9? We're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 19. But again, and if you're a, a note taker, uh, you've got sermon notes there in front of you. It's fill in the blank. So if you like doing that kind of stuff, then this is the sermon for you. So Acts chapter 9. And look with me as, <clears throat> as I read verses 1 through 19. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that if any had been found belonging to the way, this was another word for uh, Christianity, both men and women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus, named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And he is here on authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. We'll stop there. We just read in very vivid detail a time of transition in the life of the Apostle Paul. This account that we just read is full of supernaturalism and heartbreak and confusion and fear and clarity and then ultimately peace. And here in Acts 9, we need to understand that Luke is chronicling Christianity's first and arguably most influential missionary. 
It is not an understatement that the glowing impact of Christianity in that day was not by the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or any of the 12 disciples, but it was through the personal proclamation, discipleship, and church planting ministry of Saul of Tarsus. But make no mistake, the, from the mental, spiritual, and emotional standpoint of Saul, this event on the Damascus Road shattered him. Shattered Paul to his core and left him changed forever. And so family, if we're going to see Jesus in the transitions of life, we must first, you'll see it behind me in PowerPoint, we must understand that Jesus uniquely understands significant life changes. We must understand that Jesus himself uniquely understands significant life changes. It's always interesting to me when we choose to embrace the comforting reality of Hebrews 2.17 that Jesus was like us in every way. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus suffered like us. He experienced grief like us. He was troubled in his spirit like us. He was angry at irreverence and idolatry like us. He felt rejection and betrayal like us. But we don't often consider that he himself understood the transitions of life like us. I often wonder how he dealt with the transition of losing his own earthly father. As the oldest, he would have needed to assume the financial responsibility of taking care of his mother and his family. I wonder how he emotionally navigated that day when he had to release himself from his father's occupation from being a carpenter to fully pursue the mission that God the Father had from him. I wonder how hard it was to deal with the transition of taking disciples away from his prophet cousin, John the Baptist. And though John the Baptist himself said, I must decrease and you must increase... You don't think he had feelings of envy or jealousy? That's an awkward family dinner time. Hey, Jesus, how's it going? How's it going, John the Baptist? How's your ministry? It seems to be dwindling quite a bit. But it seems looks like things are going good for you. And lastly, I wonder how Jesus, at the end of his 30 years on earth, how he felt when he was on the cross, bleeding and suffocating, and he had to hand his mother over to the Apostle John, knowing that soon he would die, be raised again, but then go to heaven and leave his mother, at least in this earthly life. Knowing Jesus experienced these transitions, we can conclude two things. First, because Jesus experienced life transitions of his own, therefore we can talk to him, we can come to him and get his help to navigate because he truly is our sympathetic high priest. Second, and this is key, because Jesus died and rose again, a better transition is waiting for us. A new heavens and a new earth is now waiting for us. An existence and resurrection glory is now waiting for us. An eternity of pain-free, sorrow-free, sin-free, conflict-free now awaits us. A new renewed garden of Eden is being prepared for us. That is the transition that those who are in Christ have. And so that helps us to be faithful now as we live in this transition until the life to come. Next, we see that Jesus often tells us just the direction and not the final destination. 
We're going to see Jesus in the transitions of life. We're going to see that Jesus often tells you the direction and not the final destination. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, you have Paul who was on the Damascus Rose. He's literally heading to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And there is Jesus speaking, the resurrected Jesus from heaven. And there is this incredible moment. But then Jesus says something. Look with me again in verse 5. Because Paul says, who, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this is what Jesus says. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Basically, go this way, go towards the city of Damascus, and I will tell you what's next. Now, if you know God's word at all, you will know that this is often how God tends to work. It is. Remember this in, in Genesis 12 with Abraham? I mean, he did something that, if we really think about it, is crazy and terrifying and would seize most of us in fear. When he told Abraham, I just want you to go. I want you to take your family. I want you to leave everything that you know, all the comforts of your life, and I want you to go. Yeah, but where am I going, God? Well, I'll let you know. You're not going to tell me? No, just, just start, and I'll let you know. I mean, if we did this, we have a hard time figuring out like where we're going to go to lunch after church. Like, we got to get that figured out. Some of you are tapping your spouse, like, I'm getting hungry already. Like, I know it's, I just ate breakfast, but where are we going? Like, but God often does that when he just says, you need to just go. And he told Abraham, go from this country, go from your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. But we also know that Jesus, in his calling of us, says simply, follow me. He didn't say, follow your spouse. He didn't say, follow your kids, follow financial security. He didn't say, follow a career path, follow the money, follow your comfortability, follow your dreams. He says simply, follow me. But to do this, you have to be looking at him. And so may I ask you a question? Where are you looking this morning? Where are you looking at as you sit here this morning. Years ago, my father, as it has been said, is here. Um, and in my younger years, my dad and I would go running together. Life has changed, and both of us are now older, and we don't spend much time running anymore, but there was a time where we would run. My dad would wear unusually short clothing back then to run, but we won't talk about that. But, <laughs> but we would run together. We would get up really early in the morning, and we would run. And my dad would always lead, and I would follow. And as we ran around town, I would stay three or four or five paces behind. I always remember my dad breathed a certain way, and he told me that you should have consistent breathing. He taught me how I'm supposed to run and roll my feet so that you preserve energy and it's not so hard on your hips and your knees. And when my dad stopped or he wanted to talk, that we did, and often he would change course because he was getting tired, because he was older than me, or he felt good, and so we would keep running. But I followed his lead. Where he went, I followed. We are supposed to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. I believe behind me in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I think this verse is up, it says this, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Here it is, verse 2, looking to Jesus. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to look to him to follow him. Next, seeing Jesus in the transitions of life means silence and fasting is needed now more than ever. Silence and fasting is needed now more than ever. If we're not careful, we could overlook this very small and often insignificant part of the narrative. I want you to look with me at verse 8 and 9 again. It says this, So Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there's theories of why and what prompted this fast by the Apostle Paul. And I'll address that in just a moment. But the bigger question is, why did God cause Paul to be blind at all? And why three days? Do you know what I think? I think that that God made the Apostle Paul blind because he needed to strip away everything from Paul. His pride, his selfish ambition, his identity, and ultimately he could emerge into the light and truly enjoy the freedom that is found in the gospel. But why did he fast? I believe Paul was absolutely devastated. He was 100% in an existential and theological crisis of faith. Do you know what Paul believed about Jesus before the Damascus Road? He believed this, that Jesus was born out of wedlock. He believed that Jesus was a lawbreaker. He believed that Jesus was a heretic because he claimed to be God. He believed that he was a crucified criminal. He believed that Jesus deceived a lot of people. He believed that Jesus died and his disciples pulled off the greatest deception ever. Remember in Matthew 28, it is said this, is that you need to... Uh, when, he, when he talked about this in Matthew 28, when they assembled the elders and taking counsel, they gave a large sum of money to these soldiers who were watching the tomb. And they said, tell people this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And so that's what Paul believed. But now Paul realizes this. Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus is really God. That he actually has been opposing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the whole time. He realized that he approved an innocent man to be stoned to death. He realized in that moment that he had put innocent people in jail physically assaulting fathers and mothers, dragging them out of their homes in front of their children. It completely devastated him. And maybe at the end of that fast, he wanted to hear from God. Maybe at the end, he was ready to submit to God's will. But initially, I don't think Paul ate because he was a shattered man. Paul needed that silence with God. Paul needed to fast. And make no mistake, Christianity in America needs to recapture the discipline of silence, solitude, and fasting. Why? Well, because of this fact. We have everything that we want. We have the ability to keep ourselves pleasured, fed, and busy. 
One of my favorite books that I read just recently is Tony Renke's book, uh, The 12 Ways That Your Phone Is Changing You. And there's a quote that should come up behind me. Uh, if not, I'll just read it. Is the quote not there? Nope. Okay, it says this. The philosophical maxim, I think, therefore I am, has been embraced, replaced with the digital model, motto, I connect, therefore I am. Leading to the status desire, I am liked, therefore I am. But our digital connection and ticks of approval of flickering pixels cannot ground the meaning of our lives. And yet I seek to satisfy this desire every time I cozy up to the Facebook bar stool to which every friend knows my name, where my presence can be affirmed and reaffirmed at virtual points throughout the day. I want, and this is key, I want anything to break the silence that makes me feel the weight of my mortality. Nothing puts social media and smartphone habits into context like the blunt reality of our mortality. Let it sink in a bit. Feel the brevity of your life, and it will make you feel fully alive. There's a reason why young people struggle so much to turn music off, to just be silent. For many of us, we struggle living in silence and solitude. But I want to remind you and challenge you this morning, we have gotten so used to the fog of mediocre Christianity, but if you allow the fog to burn off, and finally feel the warmth and beauty and light of sweet communion with our Creator, we will finally feel alive again. We finally become our true selves again. Next, the fourth way that we see Jesus in the transitions of life is to remember that God doesn't make mistakes in picking the right person. God doesn't make mistakes in picking the right person. Look with me again in verse 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he says, here I am. And the Lord said, go, get up to a street called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. God goes on to say, you need to go basically heal this guy, Paul. And Ananias stops God and says, wait a minute, hold on, do you know who this is? Do you know who this person is? Paul is literally, from Ananias' standpoint, the worst person for this job. He just approved the murder of one of your followers. But God says this, I do know who this is. This is who I chose to make my name great. God's greatest enemy, by his unfathomable wisdom and mercy, now became his greatest missionary. Let's just stop right there. That should be supremely encouraging to us in this room. I don't think any of us get to believe the narrative that you can't be used by God. You know what? He can't use me. You know what? I've got a messy history. You know what? I've got baggage. You know what? I have made mistakes. You know what? That I am still dealing with some of the consequences, though I am healed and redeemed and forgiven, but God can't use me. And God says, who I choose to serve me, to place before me, to empower you, that He will use you. And that's exciting for us. And I want to ask you this question. What has God chosen you to do? You, this morning. What has He chosen you to do? When I was growing up, I did love to read these books, Choose Your Own Adventure books. 
But you know what I used to do with those books? I used to get them, and then I would, and these books, if you don't know, that you get to basically, as the title says, you get to choose your own adventure. I would go all the way back to the end. I would pick a line, and I would look at the end. And if I liked one of the endings, then I would go and read that one. And I wouldn't read the other adventures, because I don't want those adventures. I just want that one. I love looking at the end, seeing the different paths, but then I chose my favorite adventure. Many of us want to do this with God. We want to be able to choose our adventure, and not only that, we want to be able to see what happens at the end. But may I challenge you, God's adventure is always the right one. It's always the best one. Not necessarily the easiest one, but the best one. And lastly, seeing Jesus in, the times of, in times of transition means remembering God is doing multiple things at once. It means remembering God is doing multiple things at once. You know, Ananias is often forgotten in the gravitational pull of Paul's conversion. Actually, Ananias is never mentioned again in the Bible. But while God was becoming the Lord of the Apostle Paul's life, Ananias was being stretched and strengthened, addressing his own fears and completing God's plan for his life. It is likely that Ananias was the one that actually baptized Paul. But the point we draw from this brief snapshot of Ananias is this. God is always doing multiple things at once, especially during times of transition. And by knowing this, this helps us take our eyes off ourselves from preventing us from having a pity party. In these crucial moments of a transition, God may be calling on you to lead others, to help others through their transition. Um, many of you know this, but I grew up at, well, it's now Life Point, but back then it was First Baptist. And I've often joked that they never let me come preach there, so I don't love them anymore. I just love Calvary Baptist Church, but... Um, <laughs> But as many of you know, it is very sweet to see where LifePoint is now, the health and the direction of where they're at. But for many of you who have lived in this community long enough, or maybe used to attend there, it has been quite a journey for years. And my goal is not to make reference or to spend time reflecting on that. But years ago, a few, about probably four or five years ago, an unnamed person, I don't want to say who it is, but uh, attended for all of those times of transition. And I sat down with this individual, and I asked him this, is now somebody who has been in pastoral ministry and who has been, he's been one of my mentors in a sense. I asked him, why did you stay through all of those transition time? Why were you, did you still stay there? And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I knew I was supposed to provide calm in the midst of a storm. And, and as much as that, I think, is good, it actually, he said something even better. He continued and he said this, I never got tired of being in the storm with Jesus. And so as we wrap up our time, I want to ask this one question to you. And it's simply this, can you see Jesus this morning? Can you see Jesus this morning? 
Now, some of you, if you're honest, you will look at me and go, you know what, I actually can't. I actually came in this morning and it's hard. It's hard to see him with where I'm at in my life. And maybe you'll ask me, so what do I do? Okay? You preachers are supposed to be practical and applicational at some point. Like, I love all the data about the Apostle Paul, but, but what do I do? I want to see Jesus more clearly. Some of you may not be in a transition, but you want to see Jesus more clearly at this point in your life. What do I do? I've been impressed about one thing of late. As I have spent more time in the last few years studying the Old Testament, I am. Um, it hit me not too long ago that the nation of Israel, as they were wandering around and they were setting up the tabernacle, they set themselves up when they would uh, stop and reside somewhere is that the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God would be right in the middle of camp and the tribes, the 12 tribes would break up into tribes of three and three and three and three and surround the tabernacle. Now, if you ask the question, why? Why did God do it that way. It's to remind the people that God must be center of your life. And if we're going to see Jesus more clearly, we need to put him in the center of our lives again. Now, that might mean for some of you, as you bring Jesus into the center of your life, you may find that there is no room for him. You welcome him in, and there's no room for him to sit. You have put so many things in your life so many things distract you that Jesus has no idea where to sit. There is no room for him. You have not even created enough space for him to sit down. And maybe it's time to do an inventory and move some of those things out so Jesus can be the center of your life again. For others of you, as you bring Jesus back into the center of your life, you're going to realize that there's some stuff that shouldn't be there. And you know this. And that's why you have been hesitating to bring Jesus back in the center. But may I encourage you to this? Here's what Jesus wants. Yes, he desires to be right in the center of your life, but he is a gracious, patient God who actually wants to help you with your stuff as you remove it. He doesn't wait on the outside and wait till you clean up your life and then come in. He wants to be invited in and he will pick you up and he will empower you and he will forgive you and to help you become more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. And that's the God that we serve. And lastly, some of you can't see Jesus because you are already ahead of him. You're ahead of him. And Jesus is going, wait, 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 come on back. Yeah, but I don't want to stand at the street corner. I know, but if you don't, you're going to miss this that I have for you. No, but I want to get here. No, 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 no. You need to be back here because I want to show you this in your life. This person needs you right now. And so some of us need to, as we put Jesus back in the center, we need to get back and let him lead again. And the reality will be the contentment that you will find in your life is because as you now are looking to Jesus, you will see the beauty. You will see his plan. You will see his goodness. You will see him working because you can't see him work because you've been ahead of him. But then you go, oh, this is the sweetest place to be. So be encouraged as God wants to have you see him 
in not only the transitions of life, but in every possible way. And he's here to help you through those times of transition. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we desire to come and bring you into the center of our lives again. Father, we want to see you more clearly. Father, there may be people in this room that this morning have been pierced and now understand that you are a God who is here. That we have tried to keep you out of the center of our lives. And so I pray that there is a humility, a humbleness, a desire to bring before you these things in our life. And Father, I pray that you show them your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness of them and the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, then as we sing, as we complete and finish our time, that may this be for the first time, maybe in a long time, a freedom, a weight has been lifted as we desire to see you more clearly. May you help the fog go away and the light and the heat of the truth and beauty that you provide invade this whole space. And as we lift our voices to you, let it be in a way where we only see you. We only long for you. And that we then in turn go live a life set apart to you this week. We need you though. And help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.